Uh, it is good to be here. If you uh, missed it earlier, my name is Joe Johnson. I'm the campus minister with RUF at Mississippi State and um, had a late night last night, disappointing night last night, but it's good to be here uh, this morning uh, with you all. This has been a joy to be here this semester uh, where I think I've been here six or seven times and always fun to be here um, and you all been very encouraging. Uh, an update on our ministry at RUF at Mississippi State is next week is the last normal week of school uh, this semester, uh, which flew by. We have one more large group this Wednesday night. Uh, we'll we're in that, and then one lessons and carols service after Thanksgiving, and then they are in finals. And um, it has been an awesome semester and a lot of fun, and God's done a lot of work. And so thank you for your prayers and your support and your care for that ministry. Uh, and this morning, we're going to be in Genesis 32, if you have your Bibles. Genesis chapter 32. And looking at what one commentator said is the strangest passage in your Bible. One of the strangest passages in your Bible. Uh, this is a story of Jacob wrestling God. Um, there are many theories on who Jacob is wrestling here. Um, people wonder if uh, this is sort of a theophany, a physical manifestation of God. Is it an angel? It's referred to as an angel, another point in scripture. Um, and actually, uh, when Jacob reflects on it at the end of this passage, he's pretty convinced he's come face to face with God himself. But whatever it is, uh, Jacob has an encounter with the Lord that leaves him humbled, that leaves him hurt, and that actually leaves him completely changed. Uh, we are going to see a picture of a God who loves his people so much that he refuses to leave them the same, but enters into their life and changes them and transforms them. So let me read our passage this morning. This is Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 22. That same night... Jacob arose, and he took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream with everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called to the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever and ever. Let me pray one more time and ask for God's help. Uh, Lord, we read a passage like this, and um, uh, we can be scared, we can be confused, uh, but all of us long to know you face to face. And so as we read this passage, Jesus, help us to see you more clearly and find you more beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when I was about 10 years old, my grandfather gave me a gift, and um, the gift was a, a little bit of a surprise. I don't exactly know how this came about. I don't know if I was playing with it. I don't know if I expressed interest in it, but I remember my grandfather sitting me down and giving me a box. 
and a sort of like a jewelry box, which surprised me because my grandfather was a World War II veteran, um, pretty strict, uh, harsh man. I didn't anticipate him having a jewelry box. But he gave it to me and I opened the box and in the box was about 20 or 30 uh, pairs of cufflinks. Uh, he worked for Sanderson Farms his whole career and so wore a suit every day. I have cufflinks with chickens on them and Mississippi State logos on them and these, um, these beautiful pairs of cufflinks were in my lap and I could feel the moment that he was bestowing something to me. He was giving me something. This is a big moment, handing something down. But the problem was I wanted to give a good reaction to that, but at 10 years old I did not know what a cufflink was. Uh, even to this day I don't wear cufflinks, I don't even know how to wear cufflinks, but I knew this was a big moment, I just didn't know what to do with it. Um, passages like this are like moments like that. We know something big's happening, we know this is meaningful, but we don't exactly know what to do with it. Because think about it like this, we see a moment like this of Jacob coming face to face and wrestling God. That's a big deal. That's a big moment in redemptive history. But think of the highlights of the passage. We have Jacob, this mess of a person who's constantly failing and in the middle of the night he's attacked by God. He wrestles with him until the breaking of day. He sustains a pretty serious injury. He begs for a blessing. He gets a new name and then walks away as if nothing happened. This massive moment, Moses actually only gives 11 verses and you have to ask the question, okay, cool story, but what does this have to do with my life? What does this teach us about God and ourselves in this world? Well, I wanna argue this morning that this passage is one of the best pictures we have of God's grace towards his people. And specifically, how his grace changes his people. Because of this amazing interaction with God, Jacob is a completely new man with a new name, with a new identity. He continues to struggle, but from this moment on, we see a different kind of Jacob. One that came face to face with the grace of God and did not remain the same. Because this is what we can say is true about our God. He loves his people too much to leave them the same. So how does the grace of God change us, specifically in this passage? I want to say three things as we walk through it. That God's grace changes us because he meets us in the darkness. Secondly, he gives us a new identity. And third, he leaves a mark. The grace of God changes us by meeting us in the darkness, giving us a new identity, and that God leaves his mark. So first, how does God begin to change Jacob? How does he begin to change us? He meets us in the darkness. Um, let me kind of recap what's happened thus far in the life of Jacob. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, the one who should know what faith is, the one who knows the promises of God, and at this point now is the main patriarch that God is using to bring about his redemptive promises to the world. So there's a, there's a strange duality to Jacob, that those promises rest on him. That he knows God. He knows God through his grandfather and his father. He's had interactions with God, even moments of faith. But at the very same time, what else is true about Jacob? His life is a mess. That he's constantly failing. He's constantly cheating. He's constantly swindling. The first two stories we have about Jacob that we went through a few weeks ago is that he steals his brother's birthright for a bowl of soup. And he steals his brother's blessing from his dying father who was blind. That's who's God chosen to work through. 
That's God's man right now, an absolute mess. And where we have him here is now grown up Jacob. He had to leave his family for 20 years. His brother swore he was going to kill him the next time he saw him, and Jacob decided that was a good moment to maybe give the family a break. And so for 20 years, Jacob wandered. He had different interactions with God, one in a dream, but ended up going to his uncle Laban's house, and there, there were some good moments. There was also some bad moments, where Jacob actually accidentally marries two different women. And then Jacob begins to have children with those two women and their two servants, But then God confronts Jacob and calls him to go home. That after 20 years, it's time for him to go home. And Jacob shows faith where he begins to journey home. But he knows one thing is going to have to happen. He's going to have to deal with his brother Esau. He's going to have to do something with that relationship. And this is giving us a little bit of a clue on what faith and repentance looks like. It often looks like reconciling hurt relationships. So Jacob begins to go home. God gives him courage, shows him that there's angels guarding him. And so Jacob takes his whole family, his riches, his livestock, his servants, and begins the journey. But then he's given a discouraging word that his servants saw Esau a few miles down the road, that his brother is there waiting for him and waiting for him with 400 men. Jacob's smart enough to know that 400 men is not a welcoming committee. That's an army. And what Jacob was just told is that he's going to die. And so he begins to formulate a plan. And his plan is a really good one, a really clever plan. He begins to take everything that he has, everyone who's with them, and groups them together and sends them ahead in waves. And with each wave that comes, they are supposed to present themselves as tribute to Esau, his brother, a gift from your brother Jacob. And the plan is that if he receives that many gifts, that maybe by the time he sees Jacob, all will be forgotten, all will be forgiven. It's a decent plan. And I do think there's some faith in it. I think there's something about Jacob giving back what he's stolen here. But this sounds like old Jacob, doesn't it? He's putting together a plan. He's putting together a scheme. He's trying to figure his way out of this one. And so he sends everyone across the ford of Jobbik. And he's left alone. And that's where we pick up this morning. Where Jacob alone, his family's across, his wives are across, his children's across. And as much as I have loved this passage, it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. In the years that I've been looking at it, I have one unanswered question. Why is Jacob alone? Why did he stay back? You have to wonder, what was he doing? And we don't know. The Bible doesn't give us that answer. I can't wait to ask Jacob in the new heavens, new earth one day. But what was he doing all by himself in the middle of darkness? We might think he was praying. He certainly could be doing that. He's about to do something very scary and asking God to be with him through this. I could see that. He also has 11 children, and maybe he just needed a moment by himself for a second. But there's a part of me that wonders. Jacob by himself, with nothing but certain death in front of him and nothing but broken relationships behind him, there's a part of me that wonders if he's thinking about leaving. There's a part of me that wonders if he is tempted to get out of there. That wouldn't be out of his character. But whatever he's thinking, whatever he's doing in that moment, in that dark moment with no hope, that's the moment God decides to break in. That's the moment God appears. That that Jacob in the middle of nowhere is encountering a God who does not come to him in the form of a dream like he did last time. 
He doesn't come in the form of an encouraging slap on the back. God shows up like a middle linebacker and puts Jacob into the ground. Why? God never does this again. He doesn't do this with anyone else throughout scripture. Why does he do this to Jacob? Well, it's the most perfect interaction he could have had. Because what God is telling Jacob in this moment is this is what you've been doing your whole life. You've been fighting. You've been wrestling. You've been fighting your father. You've been fighting your mother. You've been fighting your brother. You've been fighting your father-in-law. You've been fighting with everyone. And I am here to show you that you actually haven't been fighting the world. You've been fighting me. You've been wrestling with me for control. You've been wrestling with faith and doubt on me. And now, Jacob, I have shown up to do the job. Let's do this right now so that you can see me. That God enters into Jacob's life in this graphic way that might bother us to some degree, but how beautiful is it that God engages with his, with his man, with his boy, in order for Jacob in this dark moment to see his true hope. That God has come to claim the one thing Jacob has refused to give up, himself, his own heart. God doesn't want his money, he doesn't want his schemes, he doesn't want his plan. God shows up for the man to claim Jacob as his own. How has God shown up in your darkness? As a campus minister, every year I see a new crop of students coming to Mississippi State, and they all have big dreams about what they're going to do in these four or five years that they're there. And oftentimes I see very little of those dreams come true. Actually, every year I see students who have a nightmare entrance into college, I see recruitment that goes terrible. I see breakups happen. I see bad news from back home. I see parents' divorces. I see diagnosis. I see hard things happen. And it's interesting to see that over and over again as a campus minister that I am not declaring any of those things good. But it's interesting for me to see that oftentimes when those things begin to happen to a student, God becomes far more real to them. That when they're at the end of their rope, when they're in their dark moment, I oftentimes see God show up and do something amazing in their life because in that darkness, they are able to see their God more clearly. How has God done that in your life? That he enters into our darkness. Jacob does not want to relive this moment, but he comes face to face with his maker and knows more about his God. God loves us too much to leave us the same and he enters in. But then secondly, how does he change his people? He gives us a new identity. So the wrestling match is on. Two men wrestling throughout the night. And one of the things this tells us is that Jacob thinks he's wrestling for his life. Um, I was not a wrestler in high school, but I do remember being a little boy and fighting others. It's exhausting work. And so Jacob, for hours and hours on end, is wrestling with this man. And the question that I just have to answer here, because it bothers me if I don't, is why does this match seem close? Actually, why does it seem like Jacob wins? Isn't that strange? Well, I think what's happening here is one commentator pointed out, this is a lot like every day when I get home from work. And my three-year-old boy, Sam, has all this pent-up energy. And his mom is exhausted. And he looks at me, and what is the one thing dad's supposed to do when he gets home? Dad's supposed to wrestle me. Dad's supposed to tickle me. Dad's supposed to be holding me upside down by my legs. Dad is supposed to get on his hands and knees and throw him around on cushions in a safe way 
but to interact with my son in that way. And my wife needs me to because he needs to get that energy out. But in those moments where I'm wrestling with my son, what am I doing? I am coming low and restraining my power. I am getting on his level and interacting with him in that way. He's giving me 100% of what he's got. I'm giving him about 1% of my strength. Why? Because that's how I tell my son I love him. That's how I enter into his world. With one touch of Jacob's hip, he's broken. God could have blown Jacob away, but that wasn't the purpose of this interaction. What God is doing is he's play wrestling with his boy in order to see a change in Jacob's heart. And what's the change? Did you see it? That actually Jacob begins to cling to the one who's fighting him. It's sort of a strange way to think about, but think about Jacob in the middle of nowhere in darkness and he's attacked. He can't see who it is. He doesn't know what's going on. At first he would be fighting to get away from this person. But all of a sudden he begins to cling to this person, broken and hurt and vulnerable and begging this person to give him a blessing. There's not a better picture of conversion that I've ever seen. Going from a person who's fighting to get away from God, fighting for control with God, fighting God's law, fighting God's way, fighting God's purposes, and then all of a sudden becoming a person that clings to God, begging for more, begging for blessing. And he finally asks the right person for the blessing, doesn't he? Blessing has been a theme all throughout Jacob's life. He's been asking for the world to bless him, his dad to bless him, his brother to bless him, his, his beautiful wives to bless him. He's been asking for blessing in every part of his life, but he finally goes to the right one. And what is the blessing he receives? It's a new name. God asked Jacob his name. This is a beautiful moment. He asked what Jacob's name is, and when Jacob says his name, it should remind us of an earlier story with Jacob asking for a blessing. When he was before his dad, who was blind, who did not want to give any blessing to Jacob, but only wanted to give it to Esau. And so what did Jacob do? He dressed up like his brother in order to get it. And when asked who he was, he had to give a false name that I'm Esau. But here, here Jacob comes as himself. He comes not hiding he comes in weakness, in hurt, in vulnerability. And, as one commentator pointed out, Jacob's name actually means cheater. So in and of itself, Jacob saying his name is a confession of sin. Jacob finally comes to get his blessing in the right place and in the right way. And so what does God do? He says, your name's not Jacob anymore. Your name's Israel. It happens a few times throughout the Bible where God changes someone's name. Abram, Sarah, Paul, Saul. Here he changes his name. And what does that mean? It means God is cluing him in on the new identity he has as his people. You will not be associated with your sin anymore. You will now be associated with me. From cheater to striven with God. A new identity is bestowed upon Jacob for him to live into, but an identity that he has been given, not on his own work, but God's. Do we see the new identity that we have in Jesus? That the world doesn't get to tell us who we are. That I don't get to say who I am. Only Jesus does. And he calls his people, his sinful, broken people, his beloved bride. 
It's an interesting question to ask yourself. What are you clinging to, begging for it to bless you? And what Jacob's life shows us is that it will all fail until we go to the one that we were created for. He gives us a new identity. But then lastly, he leaves a mark. Lastly, he leaves a mark. What is the one evidence that Jacob had this interaction with God? What is the one proof that he had? I would imagine he's going to catch up with his family in a little bit. And he has, 11 wives, or he has two wives and 11 children. Someone's going to ask a question. Someone's going to ask, well, where were you last night? And then when he says, actually, um, I wrestled God all night. I now have a limp. I probably need to get that looked at. And you guys have to call me Israel now and not Jacob. Someone's going to ask for some proof there. And what's the proof? What's the evidence? It's the limp. It's, it's the injury. Look at this. This is one of the most beautiful verses in this passage. This is verse 31. As he's walking away, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. I heard Sinclair Ferguson say one time that as beautiful as Rembrandt's painting is of Jacob wrestling God, wrestling the angel, that he actually wishes Rembrandt had painted the limp of a man walking as the sun is rising weak and hurt and wounded. Why is that beautiful? Because that's the opposite of the way Jacob has tried to live his whole life. He has tried to be strong. He has tried to do it on his own. And here, after this interaction with God, he is now weak. Because the outcome, the fruit of what just happened isn't that he got stronger or more independent or more confident in himself, but actually after this interaction, Jacob is more weak, more dependent upon God, and with every step that he takes, he is reminded of his need of his God. What if the mark that God leaves on his people is a deeper sense of their need for him? What if actually a mark of Christian maturity is knowing our need more and more and knowing God's strength more and more? What if actually one of the best ways we can show the world the goodness of God is to be people who walk with a limp? To show Columbus, Mississippi that the people of Main Street are weak people with a strong Savior. Dr. Ferguson used to say this too. He was my pastor in college and I quote him probably too much. But he used to tell a story that whenever someone would, would come to him and say, you know, there's a, new, um, there's a new guy in town doing ministry at a church, and, and he's amazing, and he's a great preacher. You should go talk to him. Or that there is a new leader in the church that should become a deacon or elder one day. Dr. Ferguson would always react the same. He would always say, that's wonderful. I'm glad God's at work in that way. But all I need to know about him is one thing. Does he limp? Does he know his weakness? Does he know his need? Has he had an encounter of God like this where he's left humbled? Because if he leads with a limp, that means, that means he's powerful in the hands of his redeemer. If he doesn't, it's probably just going to lead to pride and arrogance. Are we people who limp? Have we had an encounter with God like this, not wrestling in the middle of the night, but knowing him more and more that we may see him more beautiful and our need for him more clearly? Let me pray. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we confess we, we are like Jacob who want to do things on our own. 
Uh, Lord, oftentimes we find ourselves in that paralyzing moment in the middle of darkness, not really knowing what to do. And we feel like we're alone. Uh, God, enter in. Enter into our darkness. Remind us of our new identity, Jesus, in you. And may we bear the mark, the family resemblance that we are your people to show to the world. Uh, Lord, help us be amazed by your grace and your goodness. And be a transformed people, Jesus, looking more and more like you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.